Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Pim, why don't you bring in our esteemed guest, uh, Stephen Whiting, with us with Citigroup, and that is a good thing. Yes, it is. And uh, Stephen Whiting is uh, Citibank's uh, private bank global chief investment strategist. Stephen Whiting, thanks very much for being with us. Your note talks about global trade wars. You say quick deals versus just the beginning. What do you mean by that? Well, if you think about where we were uh, with Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin coming back saying the trade war is on hold, uh, we have the framework for an agreement with China. Uh, that's a very different situation than where we find ourselves today, where we actually have tariffs being collected and expanding. Uh, we were apparently fairly close to having deals wrapped up with uh, NAFTA reforms, uh, but uh, all that has been pushed now uh, further out. And we certainly have uh, the prospect, at least the, the threatened prospect, of expanding the tariff war to the auto sector, uh, which with complicated products and complicated supply chains, you know, would greatly expand uh, the economic, economic impact of this. So we have, uh, have to consider really different environments. You know, you think about uh, how long it took for the U.S. Yeah. Uh, to cut corporate taxes, and this was all over a, a yeah. year-long drama, and it would greatly expand the impact in a negative way uh, if this does drag out and escalate. Uh, it's really unsustainable place for this to get Stephen, ever larger. You are the expert at linking profit and corporate work into economics. It's chapter 24 of any volume one in economics. Nobody read it except Mm. Steve Whiting. How do trade tariffs actually filter in to the income statement of a given American multinational? So this is much more important than I think economists generally are are thinking about. I agree. If you scale the impact of, let's say, $20 billion in collected tariffs against your GDP in the United States, you get a tenth of a percentage point, right? But if you take $20 billion out of you know, large company profits, that number is going to be 20 times the size. So if you think about just lost business, now again, that can be gained business for someone else and markets are not discriminating very well uh, to say that someone else will get that business. But when it's lost sales, it's going to be a much bigger drop in profits because profits are marginal. You know, the scale is much, much smaller relative to sales. So that's why I think you can see very fundamentally uh, equity markets swing much more uh, than uh, you will see any GDP estimate change on the direct impact of the tariffs collected. So I think a lot of economists have said, well, this is all just a sentiment issue, but it actually is a profit issue. Well, Stephen Whiting, uh, profits on the S&P 500 companies are supposed to rise, what, about 20 percent for the second quarter. Revenue is estimated to grow nearly 9 percent in the same quarter. Do you still uh, have those numbers uh, in your uh, outlook? I think we'll do even more than that. You know, and that's the the hard part of this year uh, is that we set up for a powerful, strong uh, probably 20% earnings gain for the full year. You know, profits are not going to quickly stop growing here because of this issue. Uh, but the threat is building further out 
if the trade war escalates. I think it's a very serious issue. But the other side of this is that the quick deal scenario, uh, the scenario where we were a couple months ago with these potential deals coming through, would have very little negative impact. And that's why markets are sort of really binary here uh, on this particular issue. And it's not the only issue. There's, of course, the Fed. We could go on with numerous issues. But earnings are going to be powerful and strong and not just in the United States this year. Stephen Whiting, so why is the S&P 500 only up 4.5% this year? Well, it's two things. You know, on, especially for the U.S. stock market, we had two years in which there was anticipation of tax cuts. And if you think about what, let's say, a 22% number in the second quarter uh, would mean for EPS, about one-third of that will be driven by declines in, in, in corporate effective tax rates. So there's been this buying ahead of it all. Uh, which certainly made this year more modest. We had a big uh, 20% plus year last year already in anticipation. So in many respects, we are looking at 2019 EPS, right, and discounting, you know, movements uh, looking forward. Uh, the other side of this is the Federal Reserve is tightening. It's requiring savings flows to finance the U.S. government that it was providing before earlier, uh, and that natural interest rate pressure, uh, which, again, I think has already been felt you know, in the early part of the year. I don't think that interest rates rise right. amid this trade war, but that that is already knocked down. You can see the effect in January was not, you know, a negative effect in right. the trade war. It was interest rate pressure. What are the partial differentials at the top line of the income statement? And take them over to the broader macro economy. Is, is this about less units being sold? Is it about price dampened because of a lower nominal GDP after the 7% joy we're living right now, which matters, units or price? Well, units are going to be really important for profits if, you know, for example, you have to uh, price things less efficiently. Uh, if you have uh, a lack of choice, for example, and consumers have shortages. Now, again, I'm, I'm talking about this in the way that if a trade war accelerates, you get these sorts of issues. Uh, but whether consumers push back and you have to absorb tariffs and profit margins is important. Or the worst thing is that you actually have disruptions to supply chains, which would be you know, a much more significant worsening than, than you see so far. But it, the, the disruptions to the ordinary, the efficient functioning across borders is, is a potential issue. And that can change over time. And you can find and you see in some, uh, some regions of the world, domestic production comes back, but there's a transition cost to that uh, and time. And there are disruptions. And the market has to consider that. I don't think that this is the end of the world by any means. Uh, and again, the impact could be very small. We could be quite positive focusing right back on those earnings results uh, if there are resolutions to, to trade issues. And the optimistic view of this was, for example, that the U.S. was going to drive uh, declines in trade barriers and improved U.S. exports. Uh, but that optimistic view, I think it's a little bit tougher here when uh, we see retaliation accelerate. Thank you very much. Stephen Whiting, he is Global Chief Strategist at City Private Bank, talking about the uh, corporate earnings environment. A quick start to the NATO meetings. It is perfect. It is perfect to speak with Robin Niblett. And I urge you folks to go to the Chatham House website and see a terrific, concise interview with Dr. Niblett. Trump is heading to Europe for an ideological battle. Did you think it would start this quickly? 
No, to be frank, I didn't. Um, to see the way he handled the breakfast this morning with the NATO Secretary General Mr. Jens Stoltenberg, it was just, it was like one of those, uh, I mean, he's used to sitting at a cabinet table and have everyone praise him uh, over their croissant or breakfast or whatever, but um, it was more Putin-esque, you know, Putin takes ministers to task and he really went for them. And of course, he went for them about Germany, not about NATO as a whole. So he put the NATO Secretary General in an impossible position. Robin Niblett, I'm wondering if you can describe why do you believe that European leaders are surprised by the behavior and the comments of President Donald Trump? Have they not been paying attention since he was elected? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think they are used to him uh, leading up with lots of fire and fury. They're used to him then um, re casting what happened with fire and furies he did after the G7 meeting. And they're used to some pretty tough language off camera, perhaps, uh, during the, the meetings themselves. But to actually sort of publicize uh, the dirty linen this way in front of the world press right at the kickoff, I think they're, they're just having to learn to adjust even more quickly and very difficult to do if you're 27, 28 countries. Well, if you're the head of one of those uh, 27 uh, countries, uh, why would you not get ahead of the uh, situation by actually putting forth a plan that would address some of the issues that the president has raised? Well, I, you see, I think this is the, the, the irony here is that they have. Uh, the European members of NATO have spent the last two to three years since the Warsaw summit, actually, even before President Trump came to power, uh, moving slowly, I, I would say, uh, too slowly in my opinion, but moving towards the 2% of GDP spending on defense target. They've gone from three countries spending it to eight. Uh, every country across the board has raised defense spending. On average, it's been a 6% increase uh, from the year before. Uh, they've committed uh, training troops to Iraq. They've committed troops to go out to Afghanistan. They've agreed two new military commands. I mean, they're trying to jump to the Trump tune and get ahead of the curve so that what they were hoping is that President Trump would arrive and say, look at all this stuff these NATO countries are doing. I'm the driver. I made this okay. happen. But guess what? He comes around and catches them on the blind side. Your study of history and the body of people's scholarship that you have at Chatham House, there's a massive school of thought which will be wait out this president. Discuss that from a, from a British or a continental standpoint. Do they wait out Trump or do they adapt to Trump or do they manage this as a permanence of the president of the United States? It's a very interesting uh, question, Tom. I think, and look, as, as the director of Chatham House coming to our 100th anniversary in two years' time in 1920, most of the big think tanks, Council on Foreign Relations, Brookings, Carnegie, ourselves, founded in the 1920s, um, after the collapse, well, because there were no big institutions to really help manage the world, all of these think tanks, such as ours, were involved in creating the Bretton Woods institutions in the 40s and the 50s. Mm -hmm. And yes, you're right. The instinct is to say we should wait him out and sanity will return to an understanding that multilateralism, you know, is, is the glue that helps economic prosperity yeah. rise. But right now, I think the worry is, no, maybe we're going back to something that is more like the 1900s or the 1930s, where the institutions are wow. going to collapse. And we better get ready for a world in which America will not be by Europe's side. And, Pim, this is extraordinary. 
Well, I got to say, I was listening to some old recordings of uh, former uh, Secretary of State, Secretary of uh, Defense, and uh, Chief of Staff uh, George C. Marshall uh, talking yeah. about the Marshall Plan, and uh, back in you know the time of uh, President Harry Truman. And uh, even then, it, it really took uh, Harry Truman, uh, George Marshall, a whirlwind trip around the United States in order to, to sell it. Exactly. Well, this is true. And Ben Steele at the CFR did a great one volume on this recently. The Marshall Plan, is that from another lifetime? It's from another lifetime in the sense that Europe was not just on its knees. It was devastated at the end of the Second World War. I mean, it might have been a relatively short war compared to the wars that we see today of Afghanistan, but it absolutely left Europe on its knees. And the communists... Communism would have come in right. and taken over the bulk of Western Europe, which would have been bad for the United States yeah. and bad for its economy. So there was a huge self-interest as long as you could sell it to the American people right. to do it. And I go to back to Chancellor Merkel's emotional headline today in her, her speech, uh, or comments rather, uh, about living in East Germany under the Soviet influence. What will you listen for quickly? What will you listen for in the next 24 hours in Brussels? Um, I'm going to look to see whether the breakfast with Stoltenberg is just the beginning of a continuing berating and and, and battle mm-hmm. against the rest of yeah. Europe, or whether this is his opening point and he pivots to saying, you know what, they're listening to me. I think we're making good progress. Okay. Robin Niblett, thank you so much again. I can't convey enough the briefing from Dr. Niblett. You are advantaged by going to Chatham House and looking for that. I've got that out on Twitter. Rupert Murdoch's 21st Century Fox increased its bid for the part of Sky Broadcasting. That's the pay TV uh, operation in based in the UK. They increased their bid to $32 billion. That is 12% more than a bid from Comcast. And here to tell us about this particular bid and how it plays into the overall drama of the assets of 21st Century Fox is Brian Weezer. He is the senior analyst uh, for Pivotal Research Group. He covers advertising, media, and the internet, and he joins me here in our 1130 studios. Brian, thank you very much for being uh, with us. Um, before we get into this specific uh, Sky bid, can you tell me what kind of company has Disney been for investors Has it been a really successful investment if, let's say, you decided that Bob Iger was your champion and you were going to put your money in Disney? Has that been a really profitable investment? That's a good question. I mean, it really just depends on when you started. I I feel like the the stock hasn't really done a lot, depending on the the day. Um, Compared to other stocks, it hasn't. I was looking, for example, over the last eight years. Well, I mean, the concern for a long time um, really was, I mean, when was it? Mid-15, mid I think, uh, was, you know, the market was really spooked about the, um, the, permanent uh, status of ESPN is this massive growth driver. And I think that uh, all of a sudden when they had to bring down a long-term guidance expectation and, you know, I think that's when everyone brought their expectations towards reality. Um, In subsequent periods, uh, I think there was some relative optimism. And and in fact, they set a good strategy. Um, The problem is it's an expensive one. And with all that's going on between uh, with Fox and the bid for Sky uh, and Comcast out there raising the prices for everyone involved, 
uh, the problem is the amount of time it'll take to make this worthwhile is a very long time. And the only potentially good news from this, you know, higher bid for Sky, if uh, this plays out, is that Comcast might then bid higher and then Disney at least would get uh, a better price on the 39% that it will end up owning, which will help offset the amount they're overpaying for the rest of Fox. So it's unfortunately, it's a great strategy. It's great if you've got a 10 and 20 year time horizon, they're probably well positioned relative to alternatives, but the problem is it's just a very expensive stock. Brian, your joy, your expertise, the reason we drag you on as often as we can is you link all this into what we hate, which is advertising. <laughs> all of this transaction, the billions and billions of dollars, is predicated on the game continuing. Who is most in doubt of their future advertising revenue? Fox, Comcast, or Disney? You know, I think Fox is arguably the one most in doubt of their ability to compete. I mean, one of the factors that spooked Rupert Murdoch from reporting subsequent to the event was when, you know, in India, they're out there bidding um, for rights to um, uh, cricket uh, for their Indian business. And Facebook was out there with a 600, I believe it was a 600 million uh, dollar uh, bid for this content that, you know, in a market where there's about a billion dollars of annual revenue, of, of advertising revenue. And, you know, that I think was the thing that made them, now Fox and, and their Indian uh, satellite TV business ended up winning uh, the rights to cricket. But I think it spooked them because of the resources involved and, and for businesses that are entirely ad dependent. Ironically, and a little reported, uh, it was last week, uh, Facebook uh, agreed to the uh, um, English Premier League soccer rights for, let's be clear, Cambodia, Laos, and Thailand, those hot advertising markets, yeah. um, for 200 million, uh, I believe, pounds for uh, three years in markets where, again, there's about a total of a billion dollars of annual digital advertising spending in total. And so you have Facebook again, showing they'll open up their wallets to pay for content. Amazon will do the same. And so I think that to the extent that Amazon is not ad dependent, of course, um, but I think that uh, a belief that this growth can fuel uh, ongoing growth is behind or key to Facebook and Google and Amazon, um, you know, spending for content, mm -hmm. increasing competition. I, I, I just in the time that we've got left with you, Pim, I don't know where you want to go with this. We can go so many ways with Brian, but you've been such an acute analyst of Twitter. Am I right that you still have a sell on Twitter? I do. And the irony Aren't they is doing better. The irony is I consider myself to be relatively positive about them. The problem is the stock has run away with itself. Investors have traded it up because everyone's trading it up. They get optimistic about user growth and they think that that matters. And the problem is it doesn't. Um, they're a stable business, which is fine. And, you know, this announcement um, or this Washington Post piece uh, from Friday where they announced 70 million uh, accounts being, uh, you know, canceled. First of all, this was misunderstood widely because an account that gets created in the same day and then gets eliminated in the same day is never included in their monthly active users, right? But, but investors kind of ran the other way thinking, oh, this is going to be terrible, negative, et cetera. But the user growth expectations that fueled the stock's rise recently were overdone and overstated. But the business is stable, at least. 
Brian Weiser, I got to ask you just as a comparison here because we talked about advertising, right? So what I did was I looked at the performance over the last eight years, so back to 2010, mm. of Disney, of Comcast, and of Netflix, because Netflix, of course, a subscription mm -hmm. business, whether it was selling, you know, uh, renting used CDs or whether it's streaming, right? Okay, so Disney over that period, a 250% increase in the stock price over the last eight years. Comcast, 325%. Okay, so both of those look pretty good. Okay, but that's over eight years. Oh, and then when you look at Netflix, yeah, you're smiling, and so are those investors in Netflix. Netflix has returned 2,375% over that same period. So this idea of advertising, can we just put a, you know, a stake through the heart of advertising and say, you know, if the content is there and people want it, they'll pay for it. And that's not a bad model. Oh, absolutely agree with that. I mean, although if you want to run that chart, then run Facebook as well. And I think, Correct. See, which is entirely advertising dependent and Google. I'm, I'm not part, saying yeah. they can't coexist. I'm just saying that there isn't just one model. Oh, absolutely. And I, by the way, I actually think advertising is not a very good business. I just happen to cover it. <laughs> <laughs> well, clearly, you don't have many yeah. buys, and you don't have many uh, uh, – you're only got – as long as I see as I – Nielsen's a buy, and I just Nielsen launched Criteo. Yeah. yeah, which is, uh, I think, undervalued. Investors have overreacted yeah. to the downside there. It, it, Brian, if the view from London's different from the wonderful view that Pim sees in Midtown. Is Madison <laughs> Avenue still there? Yeah, I think it's a block away. Uh, you know, it's – Madison Avenue is resilient. I think marketing, broadly defined, remains a really important function. It is not, however, a marketer's job to keep ad-supported media owners in business. Sorry. You're lucky. You guys, and Bloomberg is a great example. You're not dependent on advertising, right? That's kind of the whole point, that there are other revenue streams. There are other ways to make a business grow. But when it comes to solely... Um, having a business depend on advertising over time, that becomes a less interesting business. Oh. Brian, thank you so much. Brian Weiser with a good update here on what we're going to see. And we've had different opinions. Our Matthew Blocks, I'm looking for some form of actions from the Roberts family. I guess I can state sooner than later, Pim. I guess we'll have to see on that. I want to shift uh, attention because um, uh, history is one thing, but the, the stock market looks to the future in order to make money. And joining us now is uh, investment strategist for Edward Jones, Kate Warren. She joins us here in our 1130 studios. Kate, thanks very much for being with us. Much appreciated. I want to get right to the idea of specific companies that you think are going to do well Despite all of the chaos and all of the headlines that Tom was just describing, one of them has to do with technology, and that is Microsoft. Why yes. do you think Microsoft is the kind of company that people ought to own? Because we're seeing businesses and consumers shift things towards the cloud, and Microsoft is a very competitive company in that area. They've been uh, basically transforming the company from what we've all been familiar with in terms of the Windows operating systems and PCs towards cloud computing. And it's that success that we think continues to drive the stock price higher, 
but also is something that is really not going to be affected very much by the pace of economic growth or by trade worries. And so that's why we think it's a very attractive company to put into your portfolio today. It's got a dividend yield of almost 2%. We think dividends are going to continue to grow, but it's that really good positioning and the fact that they almost are able to create their own growth by taking advantage of the trend in cloud computing uh, that we think really positions it well. Now, why Microsoft, let's say, over Amazon? Because, of course, Amazon Web Services, a big contributor of profits, they're in the same business, exactly. cloud computing. Yes, we also have a buy rating on Amazon. So okay. we're not saying, you know, one, one or the other. Or, right? One or the okay. other. We have buy ratings on both. And I think that's what's really important, which is Microsoft is something I'm talking about because I think it's well positioned today but it's not Microsoft versus every other company. And I think even more important is investors need to be looking at their own portfolios and saying, what do I need to add? How do I keep a very well diversified equity portfolio with not just US large cap stocks like Microsoft or Amazon, uh, but also smaller companies that might be able to benefit more from faster growth. So make sure you're building the right portfolio for your situation and that if you're already overweight in technology, you're not adding Microsoft to that because staying diversified across a variety of sectors is really what's important right now. So let's talk about another sector. I want to talk about, I want you to talk about rather, <laughs> Novartis. Yes. Why? Again, because uh, it's a company that's making a transition. In this case, they've done a strategic review of their businesses and they're basically focused much more on their pharmaceutical development business where they've got cell therapies, gene therapies, basically things where uh, they're new innovative drugs and we think that'll drive growth over time. They've also decided to spin off their Alcon business. We're all familiar with their eye products uh, into a separate company. Frequently when companies do that, it's a catalyst for the stock to do better. And that should happen sometime in 2019. We're looking at uh, Novartis as basically well diversified. It's got a generic drug business that's the second largest. Uh, so it seems well positioned in this world where there's a lot of uncertainty about pricing of prescription well, you drugs. We just heard, for example, the president uh, battling against Pfizer and Pfizer pulling back on those drug increases. Yes, yeah. and uh, uh, that's one of the reasons to always be looking at the drug pipeline and thinking about what are the new drugs coming out? Because I think in many cases, the pricing issue is a little less when it's something new, innovative, and where it's really important in terms of healthcare over time. Thank you very much for spending time with us. Kate Warren, investment strategist for Edward Jones, speaking about Novartis and Microsoft. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.